Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. This week, we're joined by Keith Richards, currently chief executive of the Personal Finance Society, but not for much longer. At the end of the month, he will leave the PFS after nearly nine years as its chief executive. During that time, he was involved in the financial advice market review process. He established the PFS's pro bono advice schemes and helped set up the European Financial Planning Association. He's with me here today to discuss his time at the PFS and what comes next for the advice profession and the trade body itself. Hi, Keith. Hi, Damien. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, actually in the studio, which is uh, for the first time uh, in 14 months, which is uh, a very weird experience for me particularly. Um, one of the issues, as I mentioned, uh, Keith, was the financial advice market review, which many, including yourself, uh, feel could have gone further in, in closing the advice gap um, when it was um, published in, in 2016. Uh, how do you reflect on, on the pharma process now in terms of what uh, went wrong and what went right? Yeah, sure. The um, in 2015, I actually wrote to the Chancellor, uh, then George Osborne, to highlight some of the growing concerns around the unintended consequences of pension freedoms, uh, the growing advice gap, the potential risk of a hardening PI market, um, and whether or not the government were inclined to want to engage the sector to do something about that. Uh, now, I got a pretty rapid response from. Uh, Treasury and invited in to see Harriet Baldwin, who was the then city minister. And to my surprise, it was already on Harriet's agenda. So after the introduction, she invited me to share my thoughts on how to close the advice gap. And for me, it was very simple is that it couldn't be handed over to the regulator. It had to be driven by the executive board. Uh, So trying to use the analogy of, you know, you wouldn't expect uh, a company to hand over responsibility of strategic direction to the compliance department uh, and neither would it be fair. So um, I I think that once, about six weeks after that meeting, Harriet announced the introduction of the Financial Advice Market Review and of course that was then, um, uh, they conducted a consultation across the market which resulted into 28 different work streams. Now it's really important to remember that the government's focus was to close the advice gap. So the first time uh, we had heard uh, policymakers admit that there was an advice gap and that they wanted to do something about it. So that was extremely exciting news, uh, given the concerns that the markets had for probably two two decades, if not more. Um, That was a great start. uh, And what we saw really out of that, it was a joint initiative with the government and the FCA, uh, I was invited to pretty much all of the uh, the work streams uh, because of our status as a, a professional body, not a trade body. Um, so even focused on the consumer-related ones. And I've got to say, there was extremely good progress being made. Treasury led every work stream, which made a fundamental difference to the way that things were progressing. Uh, and unfortunately, then Brexit came along. And almost instantly, I can tell you from a personal insight, almost instantly, all the relationships we built with Treasury staff, key people, just went with, with it pretty much felt within two, two three weeks, uh, I was constantly getting uh, emails apologising that they were off on to Brexit-related matters. So that 
really fundamentally stalled the outcomes of the retail distribution review. And for anyone who wants to go onto the government's website, all of those core objectives, and it might surprise some people, the government were prepared to look at the impact of regulation and how it could address any barriers that restricted access to advice. Um, It just got thwarted. It just got stopped. Um, Now, we know that with the issues and challenges of Brexit, And of course, now the pandemic, um, the problem always is how you get key policy matters high up enough on the government's agenda when they've got other burning issues that they're trying to to tackle. So our our call is very simple. We need to reestablish the financial advice market review to to pick up where the government left off. All of the issues that were identified by the government, all of the issues in the 28 different work streams still exist. And of course, many of them, as many advisors will know, things like the hardening PI market that we predicted could occur back in 2015 indeed has uh, got particularly worse in the sense that many advisors now are struggling to find PI, in particular for any legacy DB transfer advice. Uh, But it's had a more profound impact. Hardening PI markets mean that the whole cost of a firm's advice technically increases. So the fact they might just be limited initially to a particular advice area like DB transfers, uh, we shouldn't forget when we've heard some of the eye-watering statistics of 10 times increase in premium, uh, that that means that has a profound impact on the overall cost of that firm operating and against every client that they serve. So I think, Damien, it, it, you know, it was a great initiative to see the government get involved. There was a reason why it, it got curtailed. What we need is everyone to join together and call for a financial advice market review too. Mm, I suppose you were in that perfect moment where everything came together to allow it to take place the first time around. How optimistic are you that that can happen again in, in, in the near future? Well, I, I'm very optimistic it can. I, I've got to say the government, when, when the government really do turn their attention to something, they get it. It, it was a breath of fresh air to see HM Treasury, people that, in fairness, didn't have an experience of our sector. But my goodness, they're pretty bright and they catch up pretty quickly and they know how to facilitate and get information out of everyone sitting around the table. Um, and they can see through anyone's hidden agendas pretty pretty rapidly. So, um, I, you know, I guess that's why they're in politics or, or, or civil servants. But um, so I wouldn't underestimate the power of everyone coming together. The problem that we often have is that we shout about it, but we don't do anything about it. So the sector is sometimes poorly represented. One of the things I've tried to do in the last eight years is is get a professional body more involved in the debate with government and policymakers, and that's exactly what we've done. The problem is, if you look at some of the consultations, given that there's the best part of 5,300 firms in the sector, often when the regulator goes into consultations, they get a handful of responses. So... You know, what we've got to start doing is realising as a profession that if you really do want to have an influence, you've got to take the time, invest a bit of time to put considered thoughts uh, and opinions forward when government or regulators invite consultation. Mm. I suppose in, and this has been a, a complaint that advisors have had in, in, in the past about uh, splintered trade bodies or professional bodies. Um, you know, you've had... Um, trade bodies going through all sorts of different names and iterations whereas some other professions such as you know the banks sector you've got the british banking association that is very you know very influential and has managed to shout out over advisors um 
Is there a particular reason why you think that's happened? Yeah, I mean, they're totally different markets. You know, that that saying of um, comparing apples with pears, uh, you know, the banking sector employs, you know, very high-powered policymakers in their own businesses uh, and contribute to pretty influential trade associations because they can, because they're, they're big corporates and they put that money aside and then their senior people get a position on those trade associations to act collectively for the benefit of the sector. Now, others are the same. The insurance sector, for example, has got the Association of British Insurers um, and did have that long before regulation even came into play. Our sector is fundamentally made up of a large number of small firms. So the regulator anticipates that about 70% of the 5,500 or 5,400 firms in the sector uh, are small firms, 70% are small firms, and that's determined by five people or less. Now, the problem for that is that there hasn't been a history of the sector, therefore, having the funding to fund a trade association in the same way that other sectors like the banking sector clearly do. So, uh, you know, that's one of the challenges that we've got. It's, it's an unfair. I mean, PIMFER are there trying to do a role. Others have tried to uh, effectively set up uh, new trade associations, but found that very quickly they peaked. So they got a, an enthusiastic level of support, uh, probably hit about 300 subscribers, and then and then it, it petered out. Does the growth of large um, financial advice companies, and um, without wanting to name any, we, we can probably name a few of them off at the top of our heads, um, does that help then if you've got these big companies... FTSE 100 listed, um, one of them at least, um, some of them FTSE 250. Uh, absolutely, Damien. I think the dynamics are changing. I think the sector has moved from an industry to a profession. People are thinking about these things more. Um, and I think the call to action is coming. Yes, absolutely. It's good that there are uh, larger firms with much higher levels of embedded value that can afford to contribute to the sector's dedicated trade associations. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do as a professional body, although it's it's not the professional body's role typically to lobby on behalf of a sector, that's, that is the role of a trade association. But we've played our part in wanting to address any impact on the clients of the the members that we serve. So instead of lobbying for the, the member, often my approach has been to lobby for the member's clients. So over-regulation, for example, leads to poor consumer outcomes. That's something that we should uh, have issue with, and absolutely, which is why we got heavily involved in things like financial advice market review and pension freedoms uh, and pretty much all the consultations that come out of the FCA. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the, the topic that you just mentioned of, of professionalism, you joined the, the PFS shortly after, well, in the grand scheme of things, two years after the uh, RDR uh, kicked in, uh, wasn't it 2013 you joined? It was actually of the year of RDR. Oh, okay, fair so enough. Immediately um, post. There yeah. you go. That's my, that's my uh, maths. Uh, um, you joined immediately, immediately after uh, RDR. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people have said um, over the past decade nearly it's been is that the financial advice profession has to become a profession. Uh, how far do you think that's come and how much further do you think it has to go? I mean, it's come on leaps and bounds. I mean, you know, the, 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 the problem often is, is, of course, as you start to evolve, which is what the se sector has done, it's evolved into a profession 
But of course, when you evolve, it, it doesn't look too much different like it did the week before. But actually, if you could take a snapshot from 2013 to now, it's just come on leaps and bounds. I think there's a lot more pride. There's a change in culture. Uh, there's a changing attitude. We are seeing younger people want to aspire to join the profession. Uh, at our graduation ceremonies for the last two years, as you have reported on in, in previous news items, over 30% were young women below the age of 34. So it is dynamically changing. And I think, you know, the role and, and the need for professional advice is going to grow. We all know, and the listeners to this podcast know, that there's always been an advice gap ever since there was a massive decline or, or contraction of the market as a result of regulation. But there are, that, that hasn't necessarily resulted in a demands gap. That's the thing that's changing and the need for professional advice is going to grow. But what's more important is I see in the market the confidence of professional advisors has grown. Mm -hmm. People that were worried pre-RDR about the massive contraction of some 60% of the sector were because few actually believed an advisor could demonstrate their value beyond selling a product for which they got commission. The moment we hit RDR, and I've got to say before that, 2014, when, uh, sorry, 2004, with depolarization, independent financial advisors had to demonstrate that they were charging a fee, even if they could use commission offset. So the transition has been in play for quite some time. We hit RDR, and frankly, advisors became very confident in explaining that the true value of what they did, and pretty much most of what they charged for, was them. They mm. were the product. Professional advice is the product, not a product. And and I think now that that confidence has continued to grow, uh, we're just going to see a profession grow further uh, and evolve its role and relevance even more in the coming years. Mm -hmm. So what is missing, do you think? And what's the next step in that road to uh, professionalisation? Uh, you know, the FCA has mentioned fees a lot recently. Yeah, I think we can't get away from the fact that, um, you know, most advisors will feel that, that they're always going to be over-regulated. And to some degree, that's that's right. The regulator is there to keep an eye on, on markets. Whenever you get a spike in one area, absolutely expect that the regulator is going to do some deep diving into aspects of that. So we can't get away from that. But we have to learn to work with the regulators uh, in a more joined up and considered way. I've often seen in, in the work that I've been doing over the last eight years is actually regulators in the market are not as misaligned as as each other think uh, and there's often you know when two parties come together there's there's always a bit of guilt on both sides it's when you're slightly missing the point so i think there's a real opportunity as the market professionalizes the attitude of the regulator and the policymakers are changing towards the sector albeit not perhaps at the rate that we'd like to see but that does represent an opportunity for the sector to recognise that. But it is the sector that has to take the lead, not the regulator. Mm. I suppose if you're complaining about regulation all the time, then it's not a not a great sign. If your dentist complained all the time about the uh, regulations that he was having to abide by, as he as he reached into your mouth, you'd be a little bit concerned. Absolutely, it'd be you know. I mean, if people start complaining about the police too much, you start to worry about what activities they're up to. So, you know, we shouldn't underestimate that perception is people's realities. So, for us, you know, we do. I think it's changing. I can see it changing already. Uh, at, at our conference, uh, Damien. 
three years ago, we did recognise and award a lifetime achievement, posthumously, sadly, to Linda Woodhall, who was a, a main director of the FCA. And I've got to say, the members were absolutely unanimous on their view of her deserving it and the role that she played. Now, that just wouldn't have happened five years prior. So culturally, things have changed. We've got to come together a bit more. There is a real opportunity, I think, for the sector to not only be proud in what it does, but to demonstrate that. There has often been too much fragmentation. Um, that in itself leads to mistrust. That, that worries policymakers. Once a sector comes together and starts to show more unity, actually people feel a lot more confident in it. If the behaviours change, so will the level of conduct risk from a regulatory point of view, and therefore so will the level of over-regulation reduce. So there is an opportunity, but we do have to realise that sometimes it's, it's more often in our gift than we realise to influence that change. And what are the other particular areas that you would like to see the, uh, the profession focus on as you, uh, as you sit on, on, on your beach with your mojito when it's allowed? Yeah, well, I doubt I'll be sitting on any beach with a mojito anytime soon. And, um, I, and I have got plans to stay very actively uh, within the, uh, the profession. So look, I, I think it is going in the right direction. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up far too much based on far little evidence. Um, I do still speak to firms who believe that there are some bad apples, but they can't always point them out or name them. And um, so I, I think we've just got to get focused on the things that we can influence rather than shouting about the things we can't. And I think we will see a profession continue to gain recognition and respect from its regulators, from its government, and there's no question in my mind that the need and demand for professional advice is only likely to increase. Mm. And what about the PFS, the CIA themselves? Uh, what, what challenges do you think they face uh, now that you leave? Um, well, I think professional bodies have got to keep evolving. When I took over uh, at the Personal Finance Society, they were very proud of the Royal Charter, the fact that it that Royal Charter was about engendering public confidence and trust in its membership. Um, but I challenged that because I'd read at the particular point that I joined that trust in the, uh, the, the sector was at an all-time low, obviously mainly driven around the RDR and uh, various suspicions. So professional bodies have a key role to play, but they've got to keep engaged. They've got to keep evolving themselves. And I'm absolutely confident that is what will happen uh, with both the Personal Finance Society and the CII. It does have some challenges to overcome at the moment, which um, you know, FT Advisor have, have reported on. But I'm pretty sure that between the two boards, they'll, they'll resolve those matters for the greater good of not only its membership, but for the greater good of the public that we serve. Mm. What would you say to a member who might be concerned about, you know, when, when a senior figure leaves, there might be concern about transitional periods or about what comes next. What would you say to a member? Yeah, I think you, you can never always give someone the confidence when you're the person that's going out because you're not there to actually uh, drive or govern things at the time. But often it's we do tend to worry naturally about the things that we we perceive to lose because you can quantify what that is. What you don't quite know is what you're going to get. So uh, I have no doubt, uh, and I can give any member complete assurance that I've got a great team, the Personal Finance Society, it's more substantial than when I took over, Damien, that's for sure. Um, and, and I can't imagine any reason why the standard drive 
and level of member support is going to stop anytime soon. So um, I think it's a case of you always have to give these things a bit of leeway. Ch- change often feels a bit uncomfortable until, of course, you experience it. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, then actually both the PFS and the CII need to address that. But, um, you know, as, as I think we all recognise, none of us start off ever making a bad decision. It's only when it goes wrong it becomes a bad decision. Uh, and that's the point at which we do something to correct it. So I, I think with all best intentions, you know, if if the current activities have caused uncertainty and concern, it, it's not intended. And I think both bodies, uh, PFS and CII, will, will resolve that pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And finally, one of the uh, ish- things you mentioned was the growing number of um, women taking part in um, CII, uh, PFS uh, graduations. The One of the uh, things that's often highlighted about the financial advice profession is that it's Yes, very male, but also very white. Uh, what what can the PFS do? What can financial advice firms do to uh, address that particular issue? Yeah, well, it's already started to happen. I think it's just the speed at which. Uh, I think because we are a profession that's made up predominantly of small firms, the ability to address any imbalance tends to take a bit longer. You know, when when you're part of a big industry and someone's employing a thousand people a year, you can dramatically start to rebalance any imbalance that you you pick up on. But there is evidence across our sector that it's happening. Uh, In fact, I've got to say to some extent, most of the applications we get now for member uh, board directors are often from our female membership. And when I reach out to some members who might comment that they'd like to have applied, uh, they often feel that it was no point because we're obviously looking for, for women at the moment. So I think we're going to have to get back into a stage where inclusivity means that. And I think, you know, the, we've moved on from gender to some extent. Uh, it has to be much wider. And I think I'm already seeing that happening across the profession very positively. If you, if you care to look, you'll find the evidence of it. I've just mentioned about young women being attracted to our sector, but I, I can see diversity going further across our membership. It is just the challenge of speed. So we're on a journey. We can't all of a sudden just switch the, uh, the, the uh, I'll flick the switch tomorrow and fix the problem. But I, I don't talk to anyone who doesn't get it. So I, I think it's that sometimes they're frustrated because they don't have the ability to necessarily do anything about it. That you know, So in particular in a small firm where there might be two practicing principles supported by three administrators for ex- uh, for example you know they often are frustrated because they can't dynamically change the shape of their firm overnight but it doesn't mean to say they're not committed to inclusivity or, or broad diversity uh, and that comes two ways that's not just you know what they do in their own firm but obviously making themselves far more accessible to a much more diverse customer base or client base uh, for the future Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you very much, Keith. And thank you very much for listening. And tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.